Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, filmmakers Andre Bowden Schwartz and Sam Jones on their mudding documentary, Red, White, and Wasted. That's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. I remember one time years ago watching an episode of Real Time with Bill Maher and one of the guests opined that the one subculture or the one group of people that you can still mock and make fun of without any repercussions are white people from the South. There are a lot of things to like about Southern culture. You've got the cuisine, horses, fast cars, but if you're in Florida, you might have heard of mudding. Red, White, and Wasted from filmmakers Sam Jones and Andre Bowden Schwartz is an unapologetic immersion into Florida's redneck mudding culture. Video Pat is a mudding enthusiast who must question his passion and maybe his entire way of life when the last mud hole in Orlando is shut down. I spoke with filmmakers Andre and Sam about uh, why they wanted to tell the story, uh, especially shining a, a light on a group of people that maybe society doesn't feel needs to have their story told. Sam and Andre also talk about what it was like ending up at a Trump rally during what they thought was a mudding event and how not all of the mudders might be as right-wing as they seem. This is my conversation with Sam Jones and Andre Bowden Schwartz. Gentlemen, how are you? Hello. How's uh, how's the how's the quarantine life treating everyone? Uh well Sam's in Maine, so I would say he's gaming the symptom system rather. <laughs> symptom system. He's doing good. Weekend, attempted right? upon there. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I can't complain. Uh, a lot of people have it worse. Um, but, you know, I haven't been having the greatest time lately. You know, uh, not a ton shooting right now. Uh, things are a little slow, kind of figuring out how to stay busy and not go crazy and find a way to keep making keep making work uh, despite the fact that most things still feel pretty shut down in our industry. Yeah. I mean, I guess, how do you, how do you think that the time that we're in is going to affect art and, and filmmaking going forward? I think it's going to have major repercussions, not just, I mean, there, there are short-term repercussions that are already very clear. Um, you know, uh, movies and TV shows uh, that were going to uh, start filming have canceled because in order to film now, the budgets are exponentially higher for all the safety protocols and things that you need to enforce. But little, very little movies are able to sort of get by under that wire by having a very few amount of people on set. But in the long term, I mean, I think people are, you know, I think there are two major effects that we'll see. Like, I think people are, you know, 
nervous about filmmaking, just the nature of filmmaking in general, being so hands-on and kind of old-fashioned. And I think that you'll see scripts start to change to accommodate that, certainly as far as, you know, the narratives go. You know, I think it's going to be a while before people start sort of writing Matrix 3 type rave scenes into their movies. You know, I think people are going to try and accommodate a new reality for a while. And I also think it's going to start to show up in the writing. I mean, you see the current environments reflected in the stories that we tell. And I think there's going to be a lot of sort of paranoia and tension and you know, uncertainty just in the stories that we consume over the next few years. Because I think throughout this whole process, you know, people have become scared of the world around them and scared of the governments that are supposed to protect them and don't. And, you know, some in some cases scared of the people that are their neighbors. You know, there have been a lot of other good things, but I think films like to tell the most dramatic story. So I think we'll see some effects there too in the writing. What about documentary? Because it that's one genre of film that's that that takes a lot longer to to make and produce than 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 a typical film. But yet, it's I think it's it's also something that can be made with with less people in a way. Where do you where do you see the future of, of documentary going? Well, I would say you know. <laughs> Honestly, I would respond with a caveat, which is being like, this is my, this is our first documentary film. I don't feel like I'm like super savvy in terms of documentary. I don't know all the angles. Um, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I think often more in terms of narrative films, but kind of from, from what I've kind of gathered, understood in the sort of crash course in documentary filmmaking that we put ourselves through in making Red, White, and Wasted is I think a lot of what is documentary is, will potentially see less like visible or shocking changes as a result of COVID and the pandemic. Like, as you pointed out, I think that, you know, A, so many of the kind of like true crime, talking ahead kind of documentary, you know, archival heavy documentaries can chug it along and they can keep making those films. Um, and in terms of the kind of stuff that like we're interested in doing, yeah, you can do it with an extremely small crew. Um, and I think in a lot of ways those projects can continue, but I feel like there is I think there'll be a lot of risk aversion. I think that people like funders will be more hesitant to open up their wallets and fund some kind of like, yeah, we're going to go out into the field, into the field for a few months or years and try and make this Verite project work. I just think a recession is going to damage that. And I think it there, I think there's only an increase in sort of like suspicion uh, due to, and you know, other, you know, let's say political things that are going on. And so I think that to just like jump into something and do like a really kind of risky verite project, I don't know. I don't see a ton of like studios like lining up to try and invest in in that project. I think people will be kind of focusing on on safer bets. You know, it was it was pretty hard for us to get this movie made. And I think that I feel like it would be even harder to get something like it made right now. You know, even now documentaries aren't the easiest films to get made because of their length and people still uh, don't want to, you know, in invest in, in that type of, of long-term project. Why do you think that documentaries still don't have maybe the, the, the respect that narrative films do? Well, I, I think that you want to. You have something smart to say, Sam. I was just going to ramble on a bit. <laughs> no, no, no. Freestyle, freestyle. Go ahead. Freestyle. I mean, I think that arguably documentaries 
you know, I think you hear this a lot and I tend to agree with it, which is unusual for sort of the zeitgeist, but I think that documentaries really are doing great these days. I mean, people like to watch them and they're available on every platform and everywhere you look to the point that, um, you know, TikTok is like the greatest documentary hosting platform in history, right? It's like all people telling, you know, stories using themselves. I mean, they contrive little stories, but it's essentially true. It's obviously a stretch, but it's like, it's a format that is being copied and manipulated and played with by all kinds of different people that probably don't even realize that they're making documentaries. And it's just a film nerd like me that thinks that they are, you know? So I think that, um, it's hard. It's a hard thing to ever have a documentary that gets the same kind of clout, you know, because I think especially in, um, in America, there's such a great, you know, sort of respect for money spent. You know, I think people just, if something, if you know Batman costs $250 million to film, like that's a real movie, you know, that's, that's really an achievement. Cause I think that that's what we value here is like people fantasize about one day being the kind of person who can spend $250, $250 million making the movie that they want to see, you know? And I think that documentaries will never compete with that. And I don't think that they ever should. I think that that would be terrible. But I do think that they found a newer and wider audience and probably a younger audience than people, you know, even realize. Because I think a lot of the same stuff, you know, the same inclination that turns people off to let's say mainstream Hollywood fair um, and, you know, drives them to, um, you know, seek out entertainment on Instagram and whatever also leads people to look at documentaries because there's a kind of a, a thrill of something authentic and potentially more relevant than, you know, some kind of commercial, you know, quote unquote commercial bullshit, even though, you know, of course you're being sold, the same sack of potatoes on Instagram. It just doesn't feel the same. You know, speaking of portraying real things, uh, Red, White, and Wasted, you get into the the sport, I guess, if you want to call it, of of mudding uh, down in Florida. How did how did a couple of filmmakers become interested in in, in this topic? Well, our uh, our origin story uh, with regards to this film is <laughs> very, uh, how, how should I say it? I don't know, very, very temporary in a way in that we found out about mudding uh, on the internet. Uh, we were interested in exploring different subcultures in our country. And one of the ways we were kind of researching uh, and sending each other links and spitballing was just uh, looking around online. And one of us, uh, I think maybe it was Andre, found some footage uh, from some mud bogs. And we just thought it was like fascinating, this imagery that was like, felt very, very American. And like it had a lot of like poetic or symbolic heft to it of these people in these huge trucks kind of literally blowing in the mud and like reveling and and partying and all that um and we just got fascinated with it and in trying to do research we couldn't find much being written about it or much footage of it and so it was pretty quickly kind of obvious that the solution was to go there ourselves and to be the ones or some people trying to explore understand and document this subculture. Um, and I like to think that we did have a valuable perspective on it as people who, you know, could, uh, you know, throw on a camo t-shirt and uh, pull and could gain the trust of a lot of the folks that we uh, interacted with and filmed with down there. But we were also admittedly like outsiders and sometimes having a bit of an outside perspective on a culture can be valuable in terms of shining things in a new light or exploring things or asking questions that 
maybe, you know, uh, certainly, you know, I think if you uh, commissioned, uh, you know, Video Pat to make a film about mudding as an insider, he would make a very different film than, than we would. Um, but uh, that was how we, we, we found out about it. And um, I suppose the only other thing to say was just that, like, there was an insane the impact or experience of when we went to our first big mud event after having seen a few videos online, just being there and seeing the scale of it all and the parties and the, the, the politics and the, just the utter intensity and not to mention the, you know, the vehicles uh, was just, and that really struck us. And so that was something we kind of kept wanting to come back and, and find a way to capture on film. You know, I, 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 I was never a person that really understood the appeal of, you know, racing and, and, and fast cars and, and, and monster trucks and all that. When you were down there and got to experience the mudding, did you, did you understand it, it, its cultural impact? Did you, did you get a sense of, of why and, and how it appealed to people? That's, um, I think the answer is yes. Um, but the, you know, the, the reasons behind that answer are, you know, kind of complicated because there is a cheap thrill, um, that Sam and I both experienced a thousand times of being on, uh, you know, a monster truck or a mega truck going through, you know, um, mud so deep that the tires are floating. I mean, there are things that you can do on these incredible machines that are fun because it's just bananas, right? It's like, this is unusual and it's loud and it's fun. Um, but, you know, I think that the reasons for people liking this and liking it enough to create a culture around this and even an identity around it are much deeper than that. I think it really like that to answer that question in a way you have to like take the time it takes to watch the whole movie because that's getting to the point of like it's not just about trucks right and it's like we made we tried to make the movie about trucks but we couldn't because actually it's really about these people and their sort of cultural identity and their racial identity within that and all of these other things that become very important in terms of defining a culture you know so it's like you have these trucks and it's almost like an excuse to go out and hang out with your friends who you as a group are defining as such and such by such and such characteristics and um you know to spend time trying to understand that question is i think what really drove us to make the movie because it's easy to like the trucks, but it's not enough, right? That's that's only a very surface level thing. And what you really start to figure out very quickly is like this has a lot to do with, you know, um, a cultural identity, a country identity. Some say redneck, some say don't. It has a lot to do with racial identity. It has a lot to do with, um, you know, sort of uh patriarchy within the culture you know it has a lot to do with basically all of these like bigger issues that we talk about in the country as a whole that play out like on a national scale but are distilled in their unique ways within the culture if that makes sense you know the the uh the description describes the film as as an unapologetic look into redneck culture um I'm curious as, as, you know, that's a term that, that a lot of people, like everyone hears and, and people I think have certain and specific ideas about. What did you, what did you learn about what it means to, to be a redneck? Um, and, may, and did you find that your, certain stereotypes of that were, were maybe not as true? Well, I'll start by saying like that redneck is certainly a loaded term that means many different things to many different people. And it's something that I 
something I, I think is an important term in looking at and talking about this film, but is also something like we have to be like a little bit careful about, even within, you know, the range of people we interviewed for the film, uh, both who made the cut and who didn't, like a number of people proudly identified as rednecks um, and a number of people were to varying degrees like uncomfortable with or resistant to that term and a lot of people preferred being called like country folks um, or you know maybe truck people or you know the southern or there are other terms that they felt like more accurately I mean I didn't people being like super capital O offended by the term. Um, in fact, one of the things I sort of found in like, particularly like taking it on the festival circuit was that a number of people who were very much like very far from this world would be like, ooh, the term redneck, like, I don't know about that. Who had like, you know, never met any of these people at all. Like they were kind of trying to treat the term with kid gloves a little bit. Um, Anyway, all that to say that I think that there's a culture that we were really trying to understand whatever name you want to put on it. And I think that we found, what we found was complicated. I think one of the main priorities we had in terms of the edit, at least in dealing with themes, was in really trying to convey complexity. Um, you know, we show characters on screen like, Chase, who is like, I'm a redneck, like, I use the term, I'm a redneck, I drive a truck, whatever. And, you know, off top, Krista says, I don't really know about the term, like, right, I think of myself as just country, like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily cool with that. Um, and try and show a diversity of opinion there and to show that, you know, some of the stereotypes really do, many of them do play out and, but many of them are much more complicated than you would expect. And so we were just trying to balance in showing like, yeah, there's a lot of people who've got five trucks on their lawn and love drinking Mountain Dew. And many of these people ha have a lot of friends who are people of color or have really surprising political views or have real, you know, whatever it is, trying to buck some stereotypes um, while showing that, you know, many stereotypes do have some basis in reality you know um like that character cowboy literally had like 15 trucks in his yard when we went over there uh and he calls himself cowboy you know like you can't make this stuff up um some of it's real yeah i would just tack on that you know sort of like any social construct there's no like sam is saying there's no really such thing as the redneck or a redneck but it's definitely a term that people sort of appropriate for themselves when they want to. So it's like, you could think of it, I sort of thought of it sometimes and as like putting on the redneck drag, you know, when they go to, you know, the big mud events and stuff, it's like people get duded up and they bring their like redneck Budweiser flags. And to that day, they're a redneck, you know, for fun. And they, they really mean it, but it's not all of who they are. And then beyond that, you really can't, you know, you can use the term because people are friendly with it and, you know, encourage the, you know, each other and us to use it, but it doesn't mean that much, you know, because there's no, there is no one such thing. You know, it, and I want to just jump on that for one quick second, because I thought you said something really important, Dre, which is that like, it did feel sometimes like any sort of like, I don't know, let's say cultural identity. Like it's kind of this abstract thing that everyone has their own relationship to. And you de we definitely got the feeling um, and observed a number of times that it was kind of a costume that people could take on and take off. And we would meet so many people who worked at a bank or were college students. And like, they like to listen to country truck and whatever, but then they would go to some of these big events and all of a sudden they would be performing the act of being a truck person or being a redneck and it would be so ratcheted up. And I'm not gonna sit here and say, oh, is that person this or that? But I think it's important to say that these kind of identities are like complicated and fluid and often really, really malleable depending on, you know, and that's why we felt like it was so important to show 
some of what happened at these huge mud events because when all these people would gather in mass there would be this sort of frenzy of everyone performing what it means to say be a redneck and it just ratcheted much in a way that you would never get if you were talking to these people in smaller groups or at their job or in their house um there was a very different energy and and dynamic there what about the the political aspect because again i i think you know when you hear the term redneck people have certain ideas of the the political orientation of of that type of subculture and i know when i've talked to documentarians in the past sometimes it's not easy for you know people of certain political groups to 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 get to talk uh on camera what what did you you find in terms of how willing people were to talk about po politics in, in, in this context? People were very eager to talk about politics, <laughs> I think we found. Um, we, we certainly asked people a lot about their political views. Um, one really seminal moment for us in the process of making this film was when we went to a big mud event literally like days before the 2016 presidential election. And the whole thing was a de facto Trump rally. There were just flags everywhere. People were burning Hillary effigies. Like everyone wanted to talk about politics and get on. So in a lot of ways, that was actually really the easy part was like getting people to talk about politics. Um, and I think a lot of the challenges had to do in terms of like, how we actually wove that into the into the film because we didn't want to make uh at least speaking for myself like a, a polemical or specifically partisan point like what we're interested in i think is like bigger and more complicated and nuanced than like these people are bad these people are good these people are wrong what have you but we wanted to show that there is a big political aspect to this culture and the identity of say being a truck person it is in what we found very much a you know a right wing a republican leaning kind of kind of thing and it's it's inextricably in there but you know that that we didn't want that to kind of steal the show and be like the only focus um i think that you can't you know it's worth it, I think, to acknowledge that this community was like excited about politics in that moment. You know, it wasn't, you know, Donald Trump Jr. When you go on his Instagram, it's always talking about like the silent majority is going to deliver a win, you know, and this is not the silent majority, you know, like these guys are pumped and it was like a big deal. And, um, you know, it was something that was almost, it was essentially unavoidable, you know, with our main people, Pat, I mean, Pat says in the movie that he doesn't vote and never has, but he is part of a larger movement and a culture that was, you know, really excited for a future with a new kind of president that spoke to them, you know? And so politics was not only uh, present and visible, but was, you know, like palpable and sort of driving some of the story. So it wasn't like people were hesitant. It was like people just couldn't wait to, you know, have a moment to say what they needed to say, you know. How, how do you, how do you balance that as storytellers, you know, making a movie that is about politics in a way not about politics because as soon as you make it too political you're going to lose half your audience we tried to you know that was a big part of i think focusing the movie mostly on um pat and his family in some way i mean on a very basic level they're not that political right they don't vote they don't know they're not that engaged with the specifics of politics but they are within the culture. And so it, it, it allowed us on one hand to tell a much more personal story where the politics was peripheral, 
And, uh, you know, on another hand, just the fact that they weren't, you know, they're aware of the election and they're aware of the president and they're aware of things, but they're not engaged on the front lines allows us to then tell a story that isn't on the front lines of the debate. But whenever you see them just kind of nudge the very front of their truck out the driveway or like go to an event or something, it's like right there, you know, there it is. It's like, you can't escape it. It's always there kind of floating around you. And, you know, I'd say to be honest, if anything, we just spent a lot of time in the edit toning down all of the imagery, because if we wanted to, we could have easily cut all those um, big mud event scenes with just every shot could be a Trump flag because that's how many of them were out there. You know, it's a very, it's a very prominent, um, you know, visual in the community. Um, and, but like you said, it's like, that's not, that's not the dream. The dream is not to have a movie that's only relevant in this one moment. The dream is to make a movie that speaks to the moment, but actually exists, um, you know, outside of this moment, uh, outside of just this time, because it's, it's about a kind of an American, you know, set of ideas, or it's about a, a sort of a, um, a symptom of living in America and cultural um, Americanness, and not something that's unique only to this one moment, you know, because if it was that, then I think we actually could have made a movie in like half the time, you know, we could have, we could have easily gone down, you know, gotten the talking points, had a good story for right now, put it out and been ready to go. But it was, it just didn't cross our minds because we wanted to tell a story that said something in sort of in terms of generations, like where does this come from and where is it going rather than, you know, who's down there now, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'll just add one little thing to just kind of speak very directly to your question, which was that one strategy we employed was that we, we were never going to shy away from the politics, um, but we very intentionally structured the film around Pat, and his emotional arc and his narrative journey, um, and even his family's or his and, and Krista's journey. And so that was always going to be, or for a long time, you know, very early in the edit structure of the film. So we could weave our politics in, but it was never the kind of film that was going to be structured around a political argument. It was always going to be like, we were going to find our protagonist or our core characters and follow them through, you know, a three act structure or beginning, a middle and an end. And I think that really helped keep us focused and to not do some kind of, uh, you know, Michael Moore style film or, or, or something like that, you know. Well, well, what was it like for you, you know, here you are filming and then you end up at a de facto Trump rally? What was it like to just to, to experience that from the inside in a way? It was wild, <laughs> is the honest answer. Um, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways, and then I, I think having, I'm sure having both of our experiences might might be valuable. But one was just speaking very specifically to the Trump thing. Like we had been up in, I think we were in New York at the time, you know, just reading in the papers and the news, whatever, of like Trump doesn't stand a chance. Hillary's got this. Like you know, no big like no big deal. It's gonna be a blowout. And then we were like, I don't know. And then we go down and filmed at this specific event that was like a few days before the election. And to see that all that energy around Trump and the signs and the, all the pageantry of that, I remember the two of us talking and being like, this feels, this feels like more than like, I think we should be worried. Like there's a real, there's some real energy behind this guy that we weren't seeing in some other parts of America or from some of the media that we were seeing. Um, but kind of on a more just like visceral level, it's just nuts. Like it's hard to communicate the scale of some of this stuff until you're standing next to something that has literally the tires are five or six feet tall. Um, or you're on the place that they call Titty Lane, where you have 
trucks lined up for like a mile, mile or quarter, whatever it is. There's just this parade of like just drunken, like just insanity, debauchery, all kinds of partying and fighting and celebrating going on. It's just like on a visceral level, it's just, we tried to capture that feeling uh, in the film uh, when Pat goes there, but you, it's, it's just, it's, it was just like nothing I'd ever really seen. And it was like really just fascinating and, and at times really kind of terrifying. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, the only thing I can really say to that is just to echo what Sam said. I mean, this, 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 the scale of chaos at one of these big events is really hard to understand without being there. And we were at the time novices, you know, we had, I think we had been to one, but we were just getting our feet wet and we were kind of like, what is going on, you know? And then, but to be honest, when we went to the event before, right, it was like a day before the election and we did not go down there because of the election. It was just, that's when the event was. Um, it was out of control. I mean, it was just, it, it just took everything that had been there previously and just amped it up you know that much further because they were you know there was like a real fervor of sort of this combination of you know um american you know sort of madness with you know naked people mostly women obviously and tons of alcohol and loud music and then on top of that a kind of mind altering you know, political landscape that people were optimistic about. It was, it was like, um, you know, reaching some kind of redneck nirvana, let's say. And I think that it was, it was like, you know, I doubt that the people who were there creating the energy were, were ready for it either. You know, I think it was just something that really took on a life of its own on that um, weekend and was, you know, I think the the only thing that I, that I could say from there is like it was it was inspiring for us and not necessarily in the you know most positive connotation of the word. It was it was like you know we turned to each other and we were like, oh man, we have work to do here. You know, it was like we had just witnessed something you know really um, extraordinary. You know, on on that note, the the Rednet Yacht Club is described as um, misogynistic, racist, and a drunken dystopia of white male freedom. And you know, and some people may think, okay, this is maybe the last the the last type or or, or the group that we don't want to give publicity and and, and and press to. You know, just with with the the times that we're in and, and, and the cultural conversations that we're having about diversity and, 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 and visibility and, and, and all that. So how, how do you balance, I guess, that, uh, you know, th th this need for, you know, diversity and, and, and visibility with, with this need to tell this, this really interesting story about this sort of one subculture of America? Well, I would say, um, I think that's a valuable question. I think there's a, a couple ways I am tempted to respond to that. And I think, well, one is, and Andre kind of touched on this earlier, but, you know, we filmed with a ton of different people. Like we interviewed many, many, many people. And then Hello? we, everything okay? Did I drop out? I can hear you. Oh, okay. Um, I think, think Andre's frozen. Hello? All good. Okay. <laughs> I'll just take that one from the top. Um, good to have you back. But, um, you know, basically we cast a really wide net with this film. We interviewed, I don't know, dozens of people and we started following maybe five or six different storylines and then kind of winnowed those down to focus on Pat and his family. And so there were a lot of different ways this film could have gone. And we certainly you know, thought about trying to balance it out more with other perspectives and, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a dance, but ultimately we felt like focusing on Pat and his family gave us the best story and the most complete kind of emotional experience for the audience. And part of why we felt good about choosing him and his family is that while he is participating in and complicit in this culture, kind of like Andre said, he's not like Mr. Ra Ra Trump guy. He's not one of the organizers of the Redneck Yacht Club. And I think, at, at least for me, everyone can have their own experience. But when I watch that sequence of him going to the Yacht Club, he's into it at first, but he realized it's not, it's not for him. Like he's also an outsider to that specific world um more broadly speaking that's his culture but we wanted to you know align you with some modally like you know that's not his like platform or his message to spread that's something i feel like that he tries and has kind of a difficult experience really like fitting in with in a lot of ways um so while we don't necessarily want to give these ideas some of the ideas or or problems that kind of come up in this um, this world, this subculture, however you want to say, um, we do think it's important to not like put your head in the sand um, and to show that like these people exist, these events exist, and you know I think we have to educate ourselves about. Um, parts of our culture and parts of our society um, that we're not necessarily comfortable with or don't agree with or find outright threatening, scary, dangerous, depending on, you know, who you are. Um, and so hopefully it's a dance, um, but we really wanted to try and give you an intimate look at some people who are kind of in this subculture and in this world and hopefully you can understand where they're coming for, from without us like trying to, you know, necessarily like further their platform or try and, you know, I, I don't think anyone's going to watch the film and be like, wow, to, you know, go out there and start making my monster truck and be a big Trump supporter. Although if, if you watch that and that's your response, then, you know, uh, God bless you. But um, so I just think there's a, I think, it's a, it's a balancing act and we just tried to kind of, you know, do our best in terms of showing what's out there without creating a commercial for what's out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would just emphasize, you know, something that Sam alluded to earlier, which is like, as two white guys, we are able to go and tell a story that not everybody can tell, you know, this is a, an opportunity where you take your white male privilege um, and, you know, just sort of turn it on its head and use it as to create opportunities to tell a story that is otherwise, you know, I think in the media and all kinds of places like alluded to, like you hear about this kind of thing, or you hear that people talk like this, or, you know, everyone kind of knows that this is happening, this kind of culture, but you don't experience it. And so we're kind of like, no, let's like go, let's go show that now. Let's just stop kind of guessing and let's just go get it. Let's just go see how people really talk and let's go see how people really want to vote and let's go, to go look at it and do it and confront it and say, this is what's out there. And if you want to know what it is, instead of keeping, you know, kind of your exclamation points on your keyboard, like, I can't believe it. I just can't believe this is happening. It's like, no, I think you should believe it. I think you should know what you're, you know, I think the people that are voting in the same county as you, you should know who they are, you know, because they're not going away. They're not new. They've been there before. They're going to be there after this coming election to like, you know, it's, you kind of have to, you want to kind of get with the program a little bit, like know, sort of know what's going on so that, um, you know, it just, uh, we we're hoping if anything is positive from the movie, it's like by knowing more, you kind of have more power. You're more educated. You can make better decisions in terms of, and calculations in terms of, you know, what you do politically or, you know, what you know about the world around you. And hopefully it's important. And like Sam said, hopefully it's not about, you know, create, we've avoided creating a commercial for any kind of, 
you know, thought speak or whatever. And it's just, you know, it's just a way to, a way to witness something that otherwise is hidden and try and pull the veil back a little bit and, and say, this is really what it is. This isn't the version where people sort of protect their language. You know, this is the real version. White people from the South seems to be, at least comedically, perhaps the last subculture that, you know, maybe we can joke about without getting into any type of, of, of trouble. Um, why do you think it's, it's still acceptable to make fun of that culture? And, and how do the people who are a part of that group feel about it? Oh, they're well aware. I mean, they make jokes. They they would they would often be like making the jokes that they think we're thinking, if that makes sense. You right. know, like Chase or some of the other guys would be like, "You probably think that," or Chase even says at the end of the movie, he's like, "And you think some dumbass redneck did this and that?" Like they they know they are fully on the internet. They're not they're not ignorant of much. You know, it's like they get what's going on. And they know what their perception is, you know, as to why it's okay. Um, I don't know the answer for that. And maybe Sam does, and maybe, you know, it's because they lost the civil war or something, you know, I'm sure that that's what Chase would say, but I don't, you know, it, it is in theory. Okay. But I guess at the same time, like if it's kind of, you know, representative of any anything bigger it's like look where that's gotten us you know it's probably not such a great idea you, you really don't want to sort of just ostracize one large group and sort of expect that there won't be consequences and i i don't think that works for any culture to do that you know yeah and i, I guess i'll just say i'm not sure how i feel about or if i agree with the premise that like it's okay to make fun of like this particular group of people, but it certainly happens a lot. Um, and I guess I would just say that one, I mean, personally, I just always kind of think about the, uh, the saying, the aphorism in comedy that like, you always want to punch up and not punch down. And uh, I think that's a good guiding principle kind of people with power, those in power is always good comedy. And uh, you know, uh, mocking and making fun of the the poor the oppressed the disenfranchised is usually like pretty weak not not so good um and you know we tried to include a bit of humor in this movie but to really try and avoid as much as possible any of the like easy jokes about kind of this culture and if it did happen to try and let it come from the people themselves kind of like Andre, you know, alluded to, you know, people, they know about all those jokes. Not like all the folks we uh, interviewed and spent time with, like, are living under a rock. Like, they're well aware of these, like, broader narratives and punchlines um, in the culture. And for right and for wrong, they are a bit, they got a, at least a chip on their shoulder, a lot of people, uh, about that. Um, so. V video Pat you know, does realize that things can't go back to the way they were. Um, how, how you know, and as storytellers, how important is sort of large-scale change, whether it's, you know, you know for a social thing or, or, or political beliefs, morals, or whether it's just, you know, business practices in the, in the end as well. Is, is, is change... A good thing? I would say that, well, too, I would say that change itself, I think, is, I would try not to put a value judgment on. I would just say it's like inevitable. It's just you can't, you can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You certainly can't stop it. Um, and some changes are good and some changes are bad. And a lot of changes, I think, we don't really even necessarily fully understand like right in the moment and only with like the benefit of hindsight, can we really understand and what changed and why and, and, 
end all of that. I think we're, we're often pretty in the dark as humans, but um, I would say that for most people, change is like pretty scary. And I would say there's something about Pat and his family and a lot of the people we interviewed in the film and a lot of like broadly speaking, you know, uh, truck people uh, or, or right wing people or whatever, you know, I don't think it's a, a complete uh, coincidence that, you know, in the States to be a conservative, you know, is kind of a, a way to say or a shorthand for being on the right, you know, is you, you want to conserve, you want to keep things. Um, and I think that a lot of what Pat and other people struggle with is just, I think on a certain level, this understandable human, like fear of, or aversion to change. And I think for me, at least kind of where the film kind of leaves off, I don't know if we're supposed to do spoilers, uh, or not, but is something about Pat that I kind of found to be interesting and, and perhaps kind of tragic is I think, as you said, he does recognize that like change is inevitable and that things have changed. But at least I don't necessarily see at the end of the film that he exactly knows quite how to change. At least there's there's an awareness that like the old times are over and that the there's a changing of the guard um, and there's a, a kind of a sadness and a confusion that that comes with that. You know, you, you you mentioned for the two of you that this was your first documentary, um, but I know that you both of you have worked in film for many years in a variety of other th capacities, um, but behind the scenes. Wh what did how how do you think that work pre prepared you to to move into to directing? Oh, I think um, I mean immensely. I, I don't think I could even quantify how much it helped us. You know, I think that on one hand, you know, making this movie was very hard. And I'm sure that there, it's not a, you know, as Sam said before, it's not a value judgment there. Uh, some movies are harder and some movies are easier, but it, this one was like very challenging in its own very unique ways. And it, we were, Sam and I were the entire filmmaking crew for, 99.99% of the movie. And we really fell back on years of experience doing every kind of, you know, job in terms of, you know, building a camera package that would work for the long haul of this kind of shoot, as well as, you know, running budgets and going to, you know, Hollywood meetings. It's like, it took basically every, you know, uh, every scrap of skill that we had acquired, I would say, over our years to kind of jimmy this movie into existence. Um, but at the same time, like a, 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 on another level, it just comes down to who you are. You know, if, um, you know, Sam is a more gregarious guy than I am, and if he hadn't been there, we wouldn't have made friends and gotten to know a lot of the people that we relied on to make the movie. And if, if, you know, if we had been two very different people, the movie would have come out in a, you know, an, in a totally different way. So you really, I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is like how you think about it and how you approach it and how you talk to people and the kind of sympathy that you are capable of personally. But I mean, there's no substitute for a repertoire of knowledge in terms of filmmaking just techniques and past experiences to get you through um, the ins and outs of making a movie because it's just an onslaught you know I mean it's just a mind-numbing onslaught of new and stressful information all the time um, and you need something to fall back on you know otherwise it'd be easy to become overwhelmed and the story would suffer because of it yeah, and I, I would just add to that, that um, definitely a lot of the way the movie came out was a product of the fact that we relatively early on made the very intentional choice to try and do as much of it as possible with just the two of us. And I think that if we didn't have a lot of 
technical experience and experience as DPs, camera operators, and wearing various other hats, I don't know that we would have felt that comfortable, but almost the entire movie, except a couple things, um, you know, Andre and I shot, we ran sound, we drove the trucks, we just, we just did everything. And in some ways that made it really, really exhausting <laughs> and difficult, but it also allowed us to really make the movie in some ways on our terms and to when you don't have a big old film crew and you just have two people, the way that we were able to like be in space and the way that we were able to like interact with our subjects, I think, I believe that's a lot of that intimacy and access does come across in the final edit of the movie. I do think you get really different material when, you know, we have pretty deep personal, most of the people in the movie and spent a lot of time with them. And I think they got really comfortable around us. And that translates in a way that if we were even a modest documentary crew of five people or something like that, I don't, I don't think it would have been the same, the same thing at all. Uh, Andre, I, I know you were a DP under the man that they call the king of television, uh, when, <laughs> yes. with R Ryan Murphy, when you worked mm -hmm. on Pose. Um, what did you learn from, or if, you know, if anything, of just watching somebody like him work, and how do you think that helped you at all when you finally directed? Well, um, the, I mean, the, unfortunately, the, we directed this movie before I worked on Pose, so it's not a direct link. Um, but, I mean, certainly, uh, there's a lot to learn from Ryan, and I'm sure any kind of director who has that ex that much experience but it, for me you know ryan is the most experienced director ever and when you watch him um uh, you know do an episode of television we've only done one together but you know he is somebody who walks on the set he then run the only thing that matters as soon as he gets there is doing a blocking he doesn't care about any other bullshit detail he just wants to work with the actors and then as he's setting up the blocking and doing the scene, he's basically shooting and editing the movie in his head. And so by the time he comes to talk to the DP, there's already, a, he already knows the plan. He's like, okay, get your pen and paper. Here are the 20 shots that we're going to do. And, you know, whether all those shots make it into the edit or not is irrelevant because all of the shots are correct, you know? He knows where the line is. He knows what shot he wants for this piece of dialogue. You know, it's all very much choreographed and literally directed. And that, I think, is a model of filmmaking that, you know, we should all aspire to. And it's the only connection that I can make in terms of um, our documentary is that, you know, Sam and I had to do that I although at a you know on a different sort of scale of complexity but you have to do that in a documentary and I think that documentary filmmakers should be prepared to do that because when you land at a scene or a location or you're following strange people in pickup trucks to an unknown location to an unknown event in the middle of the woods at the middle of the night you then land there and have like two seconds to figure out like you have to start with this, you have to get this. There are these five people here. You can't let them go without talking to them. That guy, I think we saw that guy at this other event. We need to talk to him because he's a link to this person. You have to direct the movie on the fly, but not by accident. You know, when you land in those scenes, you are responsible for the integrity and the value of your movie. I feel like in every angle, and conversation that you strike up. So even though it's not, you know, I can't say like, um, you know, working with Ryan taught me X, Y, and Z because it, it, the, the order is reversed, it's, it emphasizes this thing. And then when you see a kind of a master craftsman come in and do it on a scripted thing, you know, what you learn is that if you are able to do that, then you will buy yourself the time that it takes to make a more subtle and complex film. 
If you are not able to do that, you will be crashing around. You'll get lots of good stuff probably, but it won't always be what you need it to be, you know? And I think that's kind of the lesson. Uh, and and Sam, I, I know you for many years, you worked on um, Kitchen Nightmares and, uh, you know, which is a which is a reality TV series, which seems sort of more in line with 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 a documentary in a way. Did did you glean anything from from working on that that you thought that you could bring to um, to Red White and Wasted? Um, no, I mean that is certainly. I do have a number of credits on my IMDb from Kitchen Nightmares, um, but I think that like speaking candidly, the main thing that um, working uh i worked before i was a dp for many years as uh or at least a handful of years i don't remember the chronology so much as a best boy electric and a gaffer um and uh i think the main thing that it taught me was how much work is involved anything like having a real respect for anything you do there's X number of people working 14 to 16 hour days for you. And like, so I think I try to, I think there's a, a burden that you have as like a director to like respect those people's time. There's people who are crawling in, like setting lights in kitchen hoods and grease traps and doing all manner of, you know, really crappy work for you that <laughs> I think gave me like a very visceral appreciation of. But I think more, it just got me wanting to make my own stuff um, because there are many people who have long and great careers as urban electric technicians, caterers, teamsters, whatever, and working those kind of jobs, it was just very clear to me that that was not what I wanted to be doing. Um, and you, you do enough of those days and it kind of helps you uh, I don't know, give you the desire to, when you see an opportunity, like one that we saw that like, wow, we're in this subculture that feels very compelling, fascinating. I don't see anyone else uh, really making work about this or doing anything thoughtful about it. Like I'd better jump on that. Um, so um, yeah, fortunately I can say it's been since I've had to work in reality television um, and uh, Lord willing I'll never go back um, what is or do you have a, a favorite moment or, or experience from filming Red White and Wasted hmm. I would say it is it's really hard to pick one because this was years of our our life <laughs> um but i would say two a couple come to mind i suppose my instinct which is probably usually your best answer is the scene where pat um does sort of a karaoke performance for the camera and sings a hank williams jr song um i think it was fairly late in the filming process and pat is a pretty shy guy and you know he had been talking a lot about how much he loves hank williams jr and kind of eventually um like and maybe it's not as clear as it ought to be in, in the final cut of the film, but it was his idea that he wanted to do a performance for us. Like he wanted to contribute something to the movie. That kind of like intentionality, having that like back and forth um, from the subject being like, all right, there's something I want to say in the movie was like important to give him that platform. And what he wanted to do was so kind of, surprising and for I think a lot of viewers really like bizarre and unexpected and either like really uncomfortable or really funny or 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 both but it also has a real like this song has a lot of like emotional meaning for him and so just filming that I think was a real trip and I was really happy to be able to put some of Pat's ideas in in the movie and have a bit of a back and forth and I just love scenes uh, able to 
incorporate like a lot of different emotional experiences into one scene or one moment. Like I love when I watch a scene and I'm like, I want to cry and laugh at the same time or, you know, what, what have you. Like, I'm not really sure this, what to feel here. And for me, that, that scene and that experience of filming that really hit that. Well, uh, I, I don't know, Andre, if you wanted to add anything to that or... No, I I love what Sam said, and I actually agree. I was going to choose the same scene. I mean, it was extraordinary. But um, I also know that we have to run, so I was gonna. Yes, you know, I was. I, that was that was my last question. So we were gonna gonna wrap it up anyway. Um, funny how that works sometimes, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm, I like uh, it. The the film is uh, Red, White, and Wasted, and I, according to what I have here, it's select theaters September 11th, and then available on demand and DVD September 22nd. Andre Bowden-Schwartz, Sam Jones, thanks so much for, for taking the time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. really appreciate it. All right. Have, have a good day. Stay safe out there. You too. That was Take fun. Care. All right. Ciao. That was my conversation with filmmakers Andre Bowden-Schwartz and Sam Jones. Their documentary, Red, White, and Wasted, is in virtual cinemas now and available on demand starting September 22nd. That does it for me today. Be sure to subscribe to Endeavors on Spotify, Apple, Google, Overcast, Breaker, wherever you choose to listen. If there is a app that I haven't named that you think I should be on, please let me know at EndeavorsRadio at gmail.com, and I will do my best to get on there. You can also follow me on social media at EndeavorsRadio. I'm on Twitter, although I don't tweet that much. Facebook, and the big one is Instagram. Or you can visit the website, which I'm currently updating, at EndeavorsMedia.com. Stay tuned. My guest on Monday will be filmmaker April Wright, talking about her documentary, Stunt Woman, The True Hollywood Story. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex. <laughs> <laughs>